You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Welcome to 340B Unscripted. I'm here with my co-host, Rob Nahoopy. Hoopy, what's going on, man? Not much. I know this will probably air at, uh, during Coalition, but just gearing up for Coalition next week. You know, excited for that and our client appreciation event and being able to see some of our clients there and um, and our staff. You know, Everyone knows we work remote in general, except when, when we're on site for clients and uh, one meeting a year where we meet up as a team. So just love being able to see some of the staff and interact with them and, and our clients as well. So uh, excited for that next week. How about yourself? Yeah, just busy working. I'm going to miss uh, Coalition. I'll be back here um, in Pittsburgh. Uh, I don't know what the forecast looks like here, but I'm, so, I'm sure it's going to be cooler than, than it is in San Diego. So It, it won't be San Diego. We know that much. Yeah. I was just in California for, for audits uh, a week or two ago. So um, another uh, flight out, you know, is that's a that's a long flight for me from, from Pittsburgh yeah. to, to California is a long flight. So it is. It is. I, I was at a hearse audit last week and then um I guess a couple of weeks after coalition we got another hearse audit. So that's another thing. Just busy just uh working with clients and helping clients with their hearse audits. Um seem to go in you know I'll just say it. I'll just I, I always knock on wood and say I haven't haven't heard letters come out lately. It feels like it's been a bit it almost feels yeah. like we're due. And I don't know what you I think I remember last year they seem to come out during coalition. It's like I don't know if, if Hurst it's intentional or not but or just lines up that way but Yeah. It's like a little hope. Oh, we got clients coming out, you know, to the booth. Hey, we got our letter. We're like, oh no, and we're just yeah. So not, not only did letters go out last year, and maybe it's because the coalition was a little bit. Late. I feel like it was later in the year last year. It's kind of yeah. hangover from COVID, but letters were going out to clients or to covered entities the the week of coalition. But HRSA was also auditing during the week of coalition too. We had you know a number of clients that we, I remember working with. In fact, myself, we, we had Hearst audit the week that everybody was traveling for um, for coalition. So it seems like the, you know, Hearst won't kind of put a, uh, like a blackout date on their calendars for audits during coalition in spite of a, a large um, cohort of 340B providers being together for, for educational purposes. So, yeah, I was looking on our ca- our audits calendar. Yeah, I don't see Hearst audits next week. So, so good. So at least for us, there may be some other Hearst audits going around yeah. in the country somewhere, but um, none of our clients have one that, that we're aware of that our staff have to attend or are attending. All right. Well, um, today our uh, episode really focuses on Continuing discussion of the HRSA data request list. So we're going to cover the one, probably the biggest section of the DRL, section number three. That's your 340B universes. So um, we'll, we'll get into that here in a moment. But let's catch up on some news and noteworthy items in the 340B space. Um, one thing to talk about, we're seeing more state-level legislative uh, approaches to protecting contract pharmacy provisions for 340B covered entities. So um, just to recap, we've got two states that have enacted um, various laws to protect uh, 340B contract pharmacy provisions. That's Arkansas and Louisiana. And we've seen manufacturers change or relax some of their restrictions in response to those um, to those laws. We've got 11 states that have seen various bills introduced to propose some protections to uh, contract pharmacy provisions, and they're making their way through the legislative process. I, I got to shout out too, because follow a lot of this on the 340B report. And they, they put together these really cool interactive maps um, for all of the state level developments. So whether it's 
the PBM anti-discrimination laws that have been passed at more than half the states or these contract pharmacy protection laws or the state level 340B reporting requirement laws. Lots of moving pieces with regard to state legislation and 340B report has done a great job of consolidating all of that information into these really easy to read um, infographics. So shout out to those guys for for their great work. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, you know the I think the, they and 340B have both uh, put a lot of good information, but really like what 340B report is doing right now with um, just helping us keep updated with all those state levels. Because I think. Federal level is a little easier, but when you get the state level, there's just so much movement. And, um, you know, we've yeah. seen it with the PBM discrimination and now um, with the manufacturer restrictions and contract pharmacy where it's um, it's 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 a lot to do. And uh, and I agree, doing a great job, um, 340 report of tracking all that and keeping us up to date. And no, no major legislative developments on the federal side, but there is some chatter coming out of uh, Bill, Bill Cassidy's group around expanding his inquiry into 340B. Share your thoughts on what Senator Cassidy is uh, proposing here. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't remember if we, we reported on it previously, though, and this is a little while ago, he actually um, kind of added to his list of inquiries around 340B some contract pharmacies. Um, if you remember that one, so two contract pharmacy chains, uh, two of the largest ones. Um, and so, you know, as far as inquiring about 340B, but, but I, I'm perplexed at this one, <clears throat> excuse me, where he's <clears throat> wanting to introduce bills to quantify 340B use among non-citizens, so undocumented residents. And I just, I, I, I struggle with this one because I think about our FQHCs, even our hospitals that are caring for undocumented residents, right? It's, you can't turn away patients that show up with medical need. And and I'm just trying to figure out what 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 his goal is or his end game is trying to identify how much use of 340B is there because it doesn't make sense to get rid of it and to say undocumented residents shouldn't qualify because then covered entities would then have to buy it on WAC or GPO and uh, and and they're really just caring for patients and maybe that's not his end goal. I almost feel like he's more kind of questioning, um, you know, I think he's looking at California and how much Medicaid they have there for undocumented yeah. residents and almost almost says what he's saying is it, he's not using the word enabling but are we enabling illegal immigration by providing yeah. low cost healthcare or no cost healthcare um and i get that but i don't you know i think the focus should be on the illegal immigration if that's the issue not on whether we should provide care uh, reasonable care or no cost care for people who can't afford it right so i, I struggle with this one a little bit but I'm, I'm sure he has his reasons um i just sometimes i think think we're collecting data but what are you going to change with that data yeah. What are you going to do with it? And, and I'm not sure if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it seems like maybe a politically charged angle to address concerns around illegal immigration and kind of leveraging this uh, debate around the need for 340B reform to kind of parlay that into some type of, you know, proposal or um, kind of anecdote around how we're handling immigration. I don't know how I, I, I agree with you, Rob. I, I don't know what we would do with any of that information anyways. So is it relevant or pertinent to the the discussion around 340B program reform? Yeah, I mean, I, right. Is, is it that he's going to ask CMS to not allow states to provide um, uh, Medicaid to undocumented residents? And But if that's the case, then what happens is then, then the healthcare entities, the FQHCs and the hospitals end up covering all that care out of pocket, right? Yeah. Then it becomes just charity care or cash care. And so it just puts a higher burden upon the health systems. And so it's, you know, someone's going to pay for it sooner or later. And, and and maybe, and I don't see how that helps by making that trickle down to your actual um, healthcare providers um, and health system. But I guess we'll see. We'll see what, if there's anything that comes out of that from a bill perspective. Yeah.
Great. All right. Um, next update. Uh, within the last uh, week or so, we've started to see communications come out from the the CMS Max or the the Medicare administrators uh, regarding the Part B repayments that are going to be paid back to 340B covered entities. So I think four of the seven Max have um, have posted some type of statement around their process for initiating their repayments. A couple of the MACs have not stated anything right now. So covered entities that are expecting to see a repayment want to stay tuned to what their respective MAC is um, communicating with regard to how the repayments are going to be handled. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping, I mean, they, Hearst has kind of always said either Q4, Q1. I think we stated, so I, I like when we at least think about ahead of time, think, yeah, I don't see how Q4 is going to work out. So I think we are yeah, right to think it's probably going to drift into Q1 yeah. of this year. And and so, you know, it's January, so I think we have time, but good. It, I think it's a good sign that at least more than half of the max and more than half of the states do have um, processes in place for that repayment of that $7.8 billion lump sum. And as a reminder, that's the, the Medicare um, underpayments that occurred um, due to the reduction on the on the um, uh, status indicator K drugs that occurred for years, and that payment's finally coming back. Um, as a reminder, that's still just the traditional Medicare. We still haven't seen or heard anything about managed Medicare that was affected. Um, and as we've talked about before, that that's going to be a bigger hill to climb, and and we're not even sure what's going to happen with that. But something at least still think about, or at least talk to your your bigger managed Medicare p- players that did reduce your reimbursement. So this is again just just that traditional Medicare reimbursement. All right. Next um, development. This has generated a little bit of chatter amongst um, 340B community. Um, a new policy has gone into effect at the beginning of this year. This is related to the the Biden American Rescue Plan Act or the the ARPA Act that um, was uh, I think signed into law back in 2021, but starting in January of this year. The Medicaid drug rebates are no longer capped at average manufacturer price or AMP. So that means that manufacturers are going to be on the hook for paying state Medicaid agencies a, a larger amount of uh, rebate dollars when their drug rebate exceeds the um, the AMP. So uh, generating some concern amongst 340B providers in terms of what that might mean for budgeted 340B savings moving forward. Any thoughts, Rob? Yeah, and and people are always like, well, how does that affect it? And And as a reminder... It doesn't. Well, it doesn't. This doesn't directly affect 340B pricing. It indirectly yep. affects 340B pricing. And so, one of the things um, in there, just because the AMP for for Medicaid's rebate um, is affected, and and now because essentially, right, that means that if if that AMP and that spread and that penalty on the the Medicaid rebate exceeds the actual price of the drug, then the manufacturer is essentially paying Medicaid for the drug. So yeah. there can be scenarios where, yeah, the the drug's bought for twenty dollars. But the actual rebate's $25, and the manufacturer's paying Medicaid $5 for that drug to be utilized. And that's that's pretty catastrophic. From I'm like, I don't you can't budget for that. There's nothing you can do to make up for that. Yeah. And yeah. so what's interesting is the this is so right, penny pricing has somewhat sent that AMP is actually built in and the Medicaid drug rebates built into um penny pricing. So penny pricing will still say a penny for covered entities, but here's the issue. A lot of 340B savings, some of the best 340B savings we have is based on the fact that there are penny pricing and, and manufacturers are in that penalty. And so the indirect effect is if you're a manufacturer, you, you're going to try and avoid that penny pricing penalty for 340B or at the same time, this this Medicaid rebate that exceeds the cost of the drug that, that you're having to sell it for because it's just financially, it's it's not sustainable, right? To financially to be in that boat. So this will indirectly amount to more and more drugs not falling into the penny pricing penalty because manufacturers can't afford it. 
And so I think a couple of things could happen. One, they just discontinue the drug because it's losing money, right? You, yeah. How long can you really operate that way? And um, we just so saw that. Her- that, just, that happened. We just saw one example of that. I think GSK pulled Flovent off the market, probably because they're going to be paying a lot of money back to Medicaid because of their yeah, rebate you, penalties. You can't lose money, right? That, yeah. So as long as, as much as we beat up manufacturers, they, they are for profit. Yeah. And even if there's a value for the drug medically, it, they can't operate by losing money on a drug for any extended amount of time. So secondarily, I think before they do that, I think manufacturers, don't, I don't think they, they want to discontinue drugs. So I think they'll look at, can we reduce the price so we can still provide these drugs to patients, but not be in a situation where we're losing money? And 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 everyone's already knows the big example of that. The big insulin manufacturers are going to $35 insulins. Yeah. And and we already know that's going to affect both FQHCs and hospitals significantly because the because they're selling it for three four hundred dollars and now they're going to sell it for thirty five. There isn't that delta. There isn't that Medicaid drug rebate. There isn't the same three forty B price reduction. I mean, Novolog and Humalog were penny price drugs for years. So even though they're being sold for three to four hundred dollars or bought on for three to four hundred dollars at the regular GPO price, they're being purchased for a penny per mill or ten cents a vial or fifteen cents for the pack of pens. And so there's this big gap. So that created a good amount of 340B savings because the manufacturers had this big spread. When they reduce it down to 35, there is no spread. The discounts severely reduce and savings to covered entities so they can provide charity care and all everything else pretty much goes away. I think overall good for patient care, good for patients, good for costs for the health system. But you know that that's where 340B came into play and where, where I think you know, that penalty really helped 340B. Um, and honestly, over time, I think it's helped keep prices in check because manufacturers don't want to hit these penalties. Well, now I think this is going to be a significant amount. Oh, and we should throw in, that's not it. We also have the Inflation Reduction Act penalties that go back to Medicare. So yeah. you got the Medicaid rebate issue. Now you got Medicare and IRA rebates. IRA rebates. Inflation, yep. And you add 340B. I just think the number of penny pricing drugs is going to go significantly down, which yep. means our savings for our covered entities goes significantly down with it. Yeah. I mean- you know, ultimately, this is intended to help lower list prices for for drugs across the board and help impact or or reduce patient out of pocket expenses. But the three forty B providers end up coming out on the short end of the stick for for this change. For sure, you know, I think the the more concerning thing for me is you know we've heard so many folks struggle with drug shortages. If the manufacturers begin to pull products off of the market where uh, their margins are really impacted because of these new rebate penalties, that's just going to exacerbate drug shortages today and and really make it difficult for um, for pharmacies and, and healthcare providers to to get get drugs in the hands of their patients. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll see how this plays out. But I think the take home message here is um, you know I know we're already into twenty twenty four. But as these things roll out and manufacturers are planning for it, I think one thing we have to do is really look at budgeting for 340B savings, especially when you're in some of these drugs. A lot of your savings is coming from penny price drugs like insulin. Make sure you're adjusting your budgets moving forward because that means you won't have that same amount of savings, you know, in addition to manufacturer restrictions and everything else. But but definitely a budgeting component to really look at and see is how much impact do you reduce your total 340B savings by X percent to account for it. But I definitely think something you need to do. Otherwise, you could end up uh, unfavorable on your budgets, and and that that can be hard. Great thoughts, Rob. Appreciate it. All right, I think that's it for for news. Um, we're at Winter Coalition this week. Uh, we're at Booth. I I'm gonna guess here. It's, I'm I'm not there, so I don't remember exactly six zero one one. Right. Well, I saw that. I just left it. It's six eleven. Yeah, Two thousand eleven. Right. <laughs> don't go to 6011 they're yeah. like there is no 6011 yeah, you'll be 6, in the 11. ocean you got to walk to 6011 <laughs> you're going to be in the 
You'll be back at uh, um, the the Del Coronado if you go to 6011. (laughs) All right, so booth 611. Um, We'll have the spend men team there. uh, Stop by, chat with our folks. We've also got one of our 340B specialists, Shakita Carter. She's a 340B presentation veteran. This is like her third or fourth coalition presenting in a row. She's going to be at the Tuesday 4 p.m. session in the Marriott Room 12. She's talking about 340B policy and procedure best practices. So make sure you check out her presentation. Stop by and see Rob and the rest of the team at the booth. Um, And Rob, next time we catch up, we'll hopefully have some sound bites from staff on some of the things that are debated during the coalition. Probably a lot of patient definition chatter, right? Yeah, and that's my guess too, that manufacturer restriction um, type topics. But yeah, yeah I, I think expanded patient definition will be a big, big topic. Uh, what are people doing? You know, we're getting tons of questions about it. And yeah. and of course, Hearst's response was uh, lukewarm, um, to <laughs> say the least. Um, arguably, if it was a response, they just reiterated current guidance. So um, yeah, I th- I'm, I'm very interested in seeing what people have to say about um, patient definition. All right. Well, Rob, good catching up with you. Make sure you ration the Utah chocolate truffles that are going to be handed out this week. Um, I, I picked up, I think, 500. So, so just everyone knows, first come, first serve. They go Utah fast. Truffles. Um, I, since I'm not going to be there um, early on, on Sunday, actually, I'm, I'm shipping some out today to um, Adrian because she's in California. She's going to be bringing some of it down. I'm going to be bringing the rest over. So I'll have those. Um, so we have some for every day for the conference. And uh, but look forward to seeing everybody there that's going and um, definitely stop by booth 611. All right. Have a great conference, Rob. Everyone sit tight. We're going to take a quick break and we come back on the other side. We'll get into HRSA data request list number three. Thanks. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by Spendmen Pharmacy. As a pharmacy industry professional, you know 340B program participation includes complex regulatory and audit requirements that must be managed carefully and accurately. If HRSA identifies non-compliance issues, costly and corrective actions are often required, and 340B programming eligibility may be at risk. Visit spendmen.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how Spendman Pharmacy can help you ensure 340B compliance while driving significant savings. Welcome back, everyone. Rob, you ready to talk about the biggest section of all sections on the DRL? <laughs> It is definitely the uh, time-consuming section, yes, to pull this uh, the data together for this section. Yeah, I'm ready. We'll we'll get to five too. Some I I, I found recently five is also difficult. Five's purchasing data. But oh we'll yeah. That in the in another episode, but during the Hersa pre audit calls, they you know the Bazell auditors will even preface. So I may come back to three because three is the biggest and it's also the most important because it's where all of your utilization lies. So. Um, uh, HRSA uh, data request list item number three, it's consistent between both grantees and hospital provider covered entities. Um, this is your 340B universe. So there are a couple of different sub bullet points to section three, but it's essentially all of the 340B utilization data um, within the six month audit period or the sample period. So we'll start with um, 3A. Um, 3A is the uh, 340B universe um, narrative that describes the methodology and systems or software that are used to gather data. Um, they also ask you to note any limitations, exclusions, or inclusions of the data. So if your um, your TPA includes reverse transactions in your 340B utilization data, they'll want you to outline that in a written narrative um, for for 3A. Or um, if you have you know other you know, intricacies with regard to the data, um, 
they'll they'll ask you to kind of identify all of those intricacies and, and outline some of the details around how data was extracted. We've we, we've taken the the written narrative. So three A, Rob, and, and at Spendman, we've we've kind of we've expanded that or elaborated on that. We've we've felt that it's been helpful to create a more comprehensive written program narrative. So not only identifying the methodologies for how you extract your data. So you know, mixed use comes from uh, Macrohelix or Verity, and retail data comes from the Walgreens RxBE system or Well Partners. We encourage our clients to also kind of in written format, kind of just explain or articulate the various universes of the 340B program at that institution. So our mixed use accounts for our inpatient and main campus locations, clean site locations or clean site universes account for ambulatory clinics. And then we've had in-house retail and um, contract pharmacy. And we use these systems for each of those universes, right, Rob? Yeah, it seems helpful. Uh, I know the HRSA auditors uh, like that. And they're going to ask the questions anyway. So I think putting it in one place and even for covered entities to be able to fill up the narrative and really be able to articulate and understand what their processes are, where the limitations are, where the exclusions are, all those things. And it also helps you look at your programs and your uh, and your un universes to make sure that you're being consistent in how you do those, right? Sometimes we see in contract pharmacies with different TPAs that uh, maybe some of the processes aren't identical. And that's an easy way to identify it as you're actually putting it down on paper and say, oh, gosh, we, we don't. We don't do the same thing here. And so that's a good time to kind of look at your system. But yeah, the narrative can be helpful. And so I agree. We we like to see a little bit more robust narrative, which helps the whole process. Yeah. it's it, Not only does it help, I think, establish some clarity for uh, a HRSA auditor or an external auditor like us that's working with you, um, but even internally, the, the program narrative or the written narrative, I think, helps create an understanding of how your 340B program works internally. So if you've got internal stakeholders, finance folks, uh, compliance folks, you know, folks working in IT or nursing informatics, all these other different departments, you know, that's a great document to maintain internally that you can share to those internal stakeholders so they understand kind of where your 340B program operations are. So again, looking at the plain language of the DRL, HRSA is only asking for details around the methodology around how data is extracted, but there's value in adding some additional detail to that written narrative around your, your 340B universes. Agreed. Yeah. Three, 3B. So 3B, again, fairly simple. It's uh, provide a crosswalk to describe each column header included in the universe of data provided. So you're going to extract a uh, a, a six-month sample of utilization data, dispenses, or hospital-administered drugs, and there's going to be a variety of columns. Uh, HERS is looking for you to explain what those column headers are. So the patient identifier columns, if there's, you know, FIN or an MRN, um, actually, maybe we'll come back to that because there's some suggestions or some instructions around how to manage um, PHI. But you know, the um, clinic locations and other details around the, the drug charge, charge data need to be identified and de defined in a key that um, maps back to the, the column headers. Any tips or tricks with, with this one, Rob? No, other than, you know, when you look at um, 3C, which, which are the actual data elements, uh, making sure that you provide what Hearst is asking for. You know, some people just yeah. send the whole report. That's a lot of information. And not to mention there's PHI in there. You have to make sure you remove. Yeah. But, uh, you know, what we like to say, you know, just try and line up the data header columns identical to what Hearst is asking for, right? There's, um, you can, it's A through K items, you know, not all, you might not have all of those items in a, your data set because it kind of depends it, whether it's your retail or contract pharmacy side versus your mixed use side or in your clean sites, not all those elements are present and, and where possible you want to provide it. But I like to try and keep it in that same format 
So when you look at 3B, which is crosswalking what all those headers are, makes it a little easier because you're going to duplicate that definition across the various universes. So making it consistent is very helpful. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about 3C. 3C is asking for a list of all of your 340B drugs that are either administered in your hospital or clinic uh, environments or dispensed to patients um, from your retail pharmacies. Um, they want all 340B utilization for patients that were seen at the parent site locations, any offsite facilities, child sites, seen or um, uh, serviced by all of your 340B retail pharmacies, including in-house entity-owned retail pharmacies and contract pharmacies, and they'll identify the sample period. So it's traditionally a six-month period of time. Um, they also specify that they want this utilization data in an Excel format. We know that some of our, you know, Clinic partners out there may not have a really robust um, electronic health record and may need to provide some of this data um, in paper format, but um, HRSA is going to ask you preferably to upload all of this utilization into Excel. Um, so again, you're providing a file for each of the different universes where you're using 340B drugs, and there are specific data elements that HRSA asks you to include. So we'll go through those um, sub-bullet points now, as Rob mentioned, A through K. So A is the drug product in name. B is the NDC. C is going to be the acquisition price or the, the 340B price. D is going to be the type of account that the drug was purchased on and the associated 340B ID number. E is going to be the quantity issued. F is going to be a patient ID number. Uh, it's usually your MRN or a prescription number. It might be some other type of um, unique identifier that allows you to tie that utilization back to your medical record. G is payer information. So this is going to be uh, a description of the um, insurances that were billed for those claims, including any primary, secondary, or tertiary payers. H is the date that the drug was ordered or the retail prescription would have been written. I is the ordering provider. J is going to be the location. So for your mixed use or your clinic administered drugs, um, for those medical encounters, they want to know what the location or the site of the patient was in at the time or when the drug was ordered or administered. And for retail prescriptions, they want to know the location where the prescription was generated from. And K is the date that the drug was either given or dispensed by the pharmacy. So a lot of data that needs to be included with all the utilization. Right. But but there's also a lot of data that doesn't need to be included with the utilization. Uh, you know, for instance, some reports have, um, you know, some accumulation data you don't have to provide that. That'll be, and we'll talk about, we can talk, I don't, maybe we'll talk about it here, but the yep. auditor will pull tracers. So they will look at that, but you don't have to provide it for every single drug. They'll yep. pick, you know, some from the mixed use, some from your retail contract pharmacy. And so again, just be careful. And, and I, I like to just focus on these, these data headers and that's what I put in there and that's it. Yep. Uh, Greg, one clarification, or at least one question I get quite a bit is that six months of data, how does that work? How far back are they going to go? And yeah. At least in my experience, and, and let me know if you've seen, unless for some reason you have something different going on, or if maybe you request a different data period because you're changing maybe EHRs, electronic health records. But in general, the quarter you get your HRSA audit letter in, so right now we're in you know, uh, Q1, it's January, we're recording this towards the end of January. If you got your HRSA audit letter today, because you're in Q1, more than likely the data request period will be the previous two full quarters. So that would be July 1st. 2023 through December 31st, 2023. And even if your audit happens to be in April, uh, and I probably wouldn't be in April this far out, but it could be, um, you, they would still request that because they want you to be able to start collecting that data as soon as you get that data request. And so that's why it's yep. the most recent two full quarters. 
I guess years ago, Greg, if you remember, it was this most recent full six months, but they've kind of moved to quarters. I would say a couple, maybe a few years ago, they went to a quarterly format. Yeah, have been pretty consistent. Have you seen where they do anything different than that? Uh, maybe during COVID within the PHE, where maybe a covered entity needed to delay uh, an on-site visit or a remote site visit because of COVID or some other, um, you know, extenuating circumstance. Maybe there was a different, I, I feel like maybe one or two clients that we worked with had a different six-month period than what you're describing. But I think conventionally, yeah, it's going to be the full two quarters prior to the quarter where you receive your audit notice. Yeah, that's that's a, it's because a lot of people want to know that. We're like, well, what's what's my data period going to be? How far back are they going to go? So it can yeah. be pretty. It's almost nine months in some cases from when you get your letter. They're yeah. going to hit that two full quarters. Yeah, and and the, the six month period applies to the utilization data and also applies to the purchase order details that they want to see. Mm -hmm. So they're going to get a list of all your three forty B drugs dispensed or given. And then a list of all your 340B purchase orders um, for that same six-month period. But there may there may need to be a reason to go back beyond that initial six months if you don't have any um, purchases for an account um, in that six-month period or if you don't have any Medicaid billing data for that six-month period. HRSA may ask you to produce some documents that precede that six-month period. And I don't think there's any practical reason why a covered entity wouldn't be able to comply with that. But for the most part, it's going to be a six-month snapshot of, of utilization and purchases. Um, yeah. So again, there's, you know, I don't know how many letters of the alphabet that is. What is that? <laughs> One, two, seven, eight, nine, ten. I got 11. 11. Yeah, 11, 11 at minimum uh, data elements for each utilization record that are going to be provided. Uh, yeah, I agree, Rob. I think, you know, a lot of the the TPAs out there, they, they include a lot more information than is what is asked. So um, trying to minimize the amount of information that's provided uh, to just what Hearst is asking for, I think is reasonable. There may be a reason to, um, you know, again, like the tracers that are done to verify uh, replenishment orders for some of these drugs. You may have to produce some additional documentation within the um, the user interface, your, your TPA. But, you know, I think Trying to streamline your utilization reports just to what is asked, I think, is is probably advantageous. Yeah, I was to say the one one hint there sometimes can be helpful. You know, if if you're using TPAs, and I'd say majority of our covered entities are using some kind of third party administrator. Many of them have some good reports that already match kind of what Hearst is asking for. And again, some in some cases even more than they're asking for. So sometimes you want to just uh, focus on what Hearst is asking for, but. If you're unsure which report to use, some of the TPAs have a lot of report options. Check with your account manager or someone with your TPA. Say, hey, we have a – in fact, just notifying your TPAs that you have a HERS audit is actually really key. They can be very helpful. Many of the TPAs out there, especially the ones that have been around for quite some time, have been through a lot of HERS audits, kind of like ourselves. Yep. And and uh, just eliciting their help to get the right report ran with the right amount of – you know, the right data and all those things can be very helpful. It might even save you time. Um, because I know some TPAs, you you don't have all this data in one report, so you might have to be doing some manual things. And the data, they are, I'm going to try to use the right plural, the data are available. I know it sounds wrong <laughs> when I say it. Yeah. Uh, and and so they can sometimes run a single report, save you a little bit of time than having to run it yourself. So d definitely um, try and get their support for your HRSA audit so you're not doing everything yourself. Yeah. There may be cues, too, that are offered during the HRSA pre-audit call. So you'll have your pre-audit call with the Bazell auditor prior to when the data needs to be uploaded. Um, so there may be some clarifying questions that are asked by the Bazell auditor or some discussion or or negotiation maybe around the the, the nature of the data that's provided. I, I can remember at least one example where um, covered entities TPA was 
producing it, their six month period of data was based off of um, the uh, 340B process date, not necessarily the administration or the dispense date. And the Bazell auditor clarified, and they said, no, we want to look at, you know, prescriptions that were either dispensed or drugs that were administered during the six-month period. And that gave the covered entity some time to go back and re-engineer their utilization data. So um, if you're uncertain what you need to put together for your upcoming audit, it's the pre-audit call is a great opportunity, I think, just to clarify what the uh, the expectations are of the auditor. Yeah. And, you know, and there, there's some elements in here that, that can be a little trickier to find. Um, you know, D, for instance, um, is type of account that drug was purchased on, purchase account and associated 340 VID number. We don't always have that information in data because this is really accumulation yeah. data in most cases. And so, so again, sometimes you just omit data um, and you may get a question from the Hearst auditor about it. Just say, yeah, that's not available. We don't, that's not the way the TPA works, right? We're collating all that accumulation into to a bucket per se. And then it's kind of a first in, first out type thing. And so we don't always, we can't always associate it. And sometimes you haven't purchased against that accumulation yet. It's still relatively recent. You might not have hit full, full, full pack size or yep. using that same NDC after you use it during your accumulation period. So drug shortages, so that you don't always have that. So just realize, again, you may not have all these data elements in your file and, and that's okay, right? Just, you have you might have to explain it to HRSA. You may even want to put it in your crosswalk um, uh, when you talk about it, not your crosswalk, but your... Yeah. Um, in your uh, narrative when, when you explain that for your mixed use, you don't have this information. Yeah, that's a great point. I, you know, I have to, you know, you know the, all the, the Hearst audits that I've been through, the, the auditors have been really flexible and in, in accommodating when there are limitations in being able to provide this information. So C is acquisition price. Some, some systems just, they're not going to put the 340B price into the utilization data. We can pull an invoice for the drug that was replenished based on that accumulation and show the acquisition cost off of the invoice through a tracer, but uh, the TPA or the EHR might not be able to provide acquisition price, maybe for clean site utilization where you're not purchasing based off of an accumulation, you may not have your um, 340B price in your clean site data versus accepted that that's not going to be included in the data upload, um, but you, you may be on the hook for identifying that during the, the tracer portion of the audit. Same thing with ordering provider. I've had some covered entities where the ordering provider um, NPI may not be included. You know, I'm surprised that that's, you know, there's EHRs out there that, that don't include the physician information in their um, details. But again, that that's not a deal breaker for HRSA. You will have to identify who those um, authorizing providers are at the time of the audit, and we'll get into the provider information later. But you're going to need to generate screenshots and verification of the credentialing of all of those providers. But if you are struggling with getting ordering provider in all of your um, administration records, disclose that during the pre-audit call. And uh, you'll, you'll likely uh, be told that it's okay. We'll just capture that information on the samples that are selected during the audit. Is that consistent with you, what you've experienced, Rob? It, it is, yep. Because in fact, it's even, I even got another example where I've seen sometimes in the TPA data. Because remember, the TPAs are really just collecting the data that you send them or your abstracts from your um, electronic health records. And another issue I've seen sometimes is that ordering provider is not actually the ordering provider. It's the attending provider. And you could have had a resident or you could have had some other, uh, you know, uh, provider who actually wrote the order. And so those even get corrected where you think that's a provider. You even might even pull med staff records. And as you go through the samples, you realize, oh, wait, that's not who wrote the order. And so even during the audit, we're correcting who the actual provider is. Um, if if you're, the way your data abstract works, uh, that you're just pulling the attending provider for that patient, um, you might have inaccurate data there. And, and that's come up. It hasn't been an issue. It's just something you work through while you're going through the samples. 
Yeah, another another thing, and we we may get to it in a in a future section here, but specifically for retail samples. So your in-house retail pharmacy or your contract pharmacy, um, you'll need to provide a hard copy for the samples that are selected from those universes. So on average, we can get into this in a little bit here, Rob, but you know, 30 or so of the 60 samples that are typically pulled for an audit are going to come from the the retail universe. It may be a, a, a smaller number if you have a smaller um, proportionally uh, sized retail universe, but prescription hard copies are going to need to be provided from the dispensing pharmacies. That's a challenge too, because that's out of the covered entity's hand. Sometimes you're getting a, you're getting those copies from a, from an external or external vendor or another stakeholder, right? Yeah. And, and of course you get those, you're going to get your samples three days prior to your audit, three business days. So if your yeah. audit happens to be on Tuesday, then you'll get those samples on Monday and you've got three days to basically call your TPAs, say, Hey, here's your, here's the prescriptions we need. And they're having to call and get those hard copies from the actual pharmacy. Uh, some people ask, well, can, if it's an e-prescription, can we just provide the data out of our EHR? And the answer is actually no, um, because for whatever reason, what? Well, I know what they, they want to come to. They want to see what the pharmacy actually saw, and not what's in your system, because it could have been changed after the fact, um, not by you, but you know, it could have been changed. So they really want to see what the pharmacy saw, and so you do have to get even the e-prescription kind of printout from the retail pharmacy. And 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 I, I agree, great. It used to be 28 random samples, and now we're seeing 30 pretty consistently, which is good because as pharmacy people, we count by five. So 28 hours drove yeah. me a little crazy. In fact, anyone who's done an audit with me knows I always stop at a, a multiple of five. Yes. Probably some OCD thing that stuck in me from my pharmacy days when I actually counted um, pills. Yeah, I, I, you, I, I'm, I'm with you. I stop at five. So I don't like stopping on a non- it, an integer that's not divisible by five but i said you know oh i like to you know i like to stop on like even numbers so we're at 15 and i think of 15 as like a nice not an i know it's not an even number but it's it's an increment of five and i said we're gonna i like stopping on even numbers so we're gonna we're at 15 we're gonna take a break now and like people are like you're an idiot 15 is not an even number it's an odd number and i think my kids even heard me say that so but i'm i'm with you count by i've seen some pharmacists count by threes have you ever seen pharmacists count by threes no to be fair i was i can't remember i think i was in mississippi at, at a big academic medical center and one of their pharmacy managers i watched her count and she was counting threes and twos and yeah. i said wow i've never seen someone count by threes and twos before she looked at me and said just so you know, everyone who challenged me on this, I can count faster than everyone counting by fives by counting by threes and twos because she's just whipping through three, two, three, two, three, two, and and you five yeah. kind of collecting your five and and taking a spatula and move, maneuvering around extra tablets. And she did. She said she can beat just about anybody counting that way instead of by five. So yeah. I, I didn't challenge her because I'm well out of practice. I would have got what pretty good. So I I just took her word for it. I'm gonna order a pill. Pill, you know, pill tray and uh, spatula on Amazon, and and see if that's. Um, we'll do some time trials here. You know that probably makes sense for for bigger tablets. You know, big metformin tablets. Maybe that makes sense. Well, yeah, hey, oh, Tesla know. and pearls. I hated those. Those roll over the dang play, all over the place. Yeah, we should do that as a as a contest. We can take it to coalition, have two spatula trays, just get some OTC yeah. pills, have contests and little prizes. All right, um, I want to go back to two A here. And get get some thoughts from you. Um, again, Hearst is asking you to describe how you're pulling the data, and they they kind of leave it open to you to you know uh, you know pull the data in in the the way that you need to do it. You know, and they and but you have to explain. Okay, so if we're going to remove reversals from uh, from our utilization, just note that in in two A or or three A in your program narrative, and and um, we're we're good. Any thoughts around? 
What's your opinion on leaving reverse transactions in or pulling reverse transactions out? Hey, I tend to, if, I mean, it depends on the TPA. Some TPAs, it's a little harder to do that, right? Because you can't just remove the reverse transactions. You have to get their corresponding positive transaction. And yep. if you look at any individual patient and um, administered drug, you might see two charges and one reversal. And it's tricky, but if possible, I like removing them. Otherwise, it does cause some headaches because HRSA pulls the random samples. And then as you're going through them, it's like, oh, that one actually got reversed. That one got reversed. You spend a lot of time and nuanced time going through that. And they only pull so many spares. I think it's typically five. Yeah. And so if you if you have, and I've seen some systems where there's just a, almost every single sample has two charges and a reversal or five, four, three charges and two reversals. And I always ask, why, why does your system do that? Sometimes it's insurance changes or status changes. It's various reasons, but it does. Yeah, lots of char- charging credit transactions. Yeah. Happening. Yeah. The net the net accumulation is correct, but you have you know numerous lines of of charges and credits to get to that that net accumulation that's you know, reflective of what was given. Yep, and and sometimes it does reverse all the way out, and when those hit, then you have to pull a spare. I mean, I guess you you know I guess we've still sometimes you don't know that right away, so you look at it as a sample and it passes. But um, you yeah. know that what I do tell people is if if you if you're looking at a sample and you can't find it. Double check to make sure it's it's not a reverse net zero um, sample because Herso Herso realizes okay if it's a net zero then then we'll pull a different one or pull a, yeah. one of the spares but so yeah. I, if possible if the TPA has it where they can remove both the correspond negative and its corresponding positive so it's just a cleaner file I, I, that's my preference and and Herso auditors don't seem to have an issue with it because it's problematic to try and audit a reverse sample anyway yeah yeah it it, it ends up wasting some time if you're working through a sample that you don't realize had been reversed and they are going to pull a spare to replace that one. So again, you get your samples three days ahead of time. That gives you the opportunity to stage all of the documentation that you need to show to validate eligibility, to pull the retail hard copy from the contract pharmacy. So if they're selecting a spare to replace a a claim that had been reversed, you got to start that process all over again, finding out where the documentation is in the EMR to validate the administration, getting a hard copy, you know, same day from a pharmacy that you've probably not had uh, a, a a close working relationship with if it's an external contract pharmacy. So, um, yeah, eliminating or removing the reverse transactions, I think, has been advantageous in terms of you know making the audit experience efficient and not having to do a lot of additional work on the day of the uh, the on-site or remote site visit. Yeah, but that's a good point though. I, I'm sure, it feels like everyone we work with, at least we we talk about it so everyone does it. Since you're getting those sample, the samples three days ahead of time, just, just plan on blocking out those three days to go through them. You might not yep. need all that time, but clear your calendars and make sure that your team's getting on that and reviewing each sample ahead of time. Because Greg's right, it's a great time to say, okay, we can't find this documentation. Well, maybe it's a department that doesn't document well in your EHR, right? Sometimes oncology units or um, infusion centers have a separate EHR. We know cath lab often has a separate EHR. If you're if you have a home infusion uh, pharmacy, they're very separate. And sometimes, uh, who's another good one? Um, uh, dialysis might chart uh, yeah. chart in a different area. Imaging, Proceed, drugs, proceed yeah. any procedural areas where mm-hmm. there's not going to be a medication order. You know, if a physician's administering a drug in the setting of a procedure, you're not going to find an order for it, and that's okay. You don't need to have an order for it, but you are going to need to provide details from the operative note or the procedural note that validates that the drug was was given. So right, and it's always fun. Okay, is it in the op note? Is it in the pre op note? Is it in the post op yeah. note? Is it in the anesthesia record? Is it in PACU? Oh, PACU is usually not physician-based, but yeah, it's a good point. If it's yeah. part of the – if the physician administers the drug, whether it's the anesthesiologist or the um, actual surgeon, 
their documentation of giving the drug is actually the order and the documentation. So different if a nurse administers it, then you really need a provider order plus the nurse administration. But a provider administering does double as both the order and the charting. And so, but yeah. Greg's right, it's in free text notes. So you're having to go search all these notes and yeah. just knowing which one it is ahead of time will save a ton of time during an audit. I mean, even, you know, anesthesia documentation, you know, there are still hospitals out there where anesthesiologists and CRNAs are, are charting on paper. And it's these massive, yeah, these massive anesthesia flow sheets with all of the 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 gas increments and the oxygen levels and the drugs. And it, I mean, it, it's almost indecipherable when you look at some of these documents. So you want to be able to uh, kind of stage that documentation, screen the samples for all of the documents and and like Hansel and Gretel kind of leave breadcrumbs for yourself on the day of the the on-site or the remote site visits you can easily go back to you know okay on january 1st this patient was in the or and here's the anesthesia flow sheet and you here you can see where propofol was given or where presidex was given um because it, it may not be easily found on the fly and that, again that's a, a reason why you want to try to avoid a scenario where hearse is going to throw out one of your samples and select a spare because now you've got to start that process over again well, and, and one hint there, and I think a lot of people have, especially if you're on a Cerner Epic type system, have gone over to some of the electronic anesthesia charting, which is so much nicer. But yeah, yeah. But if you're still on those paper charting, what I recommend is I know at least when I was a pharmacy director, um, I had a specific billing person that was responsible for billing those anesthesia sheets because she's memorized the handwriting of each of those uh, yeah. those anesthesiologists <laughs> or CRNAs. And so if you're in that, make sure you get that person because you might need them to do some translation of, okay, who's like that a provider? Code, and, and code breaker. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, yeah. You think about, you know, who are the subject matter experts where all of your physician documentation exists? Uh, you're right, Rob. It's going to be, you know, pharmacy billers. It's going to maybe be unit-based clinical pharmacists that don't really do anything with your 340B program, but they know where their providers are are, are putting notes in into the record, or they know where phys for nurses are documenting, um, you know, I's and O's and, and other uh, details with regard to, to drug administration. So, yeah, you know, once you get those samples, you want to, you know, make sure you've got all hands on deck and, and identify who those subject matter experts are. They're going to help you get through all of the um, the data data review. Hey, Greg, one, one more area that I thought of that we've had problems with, and you almost think, oh, we don't have documentation. Sometimes uh, psych units have kind of a more lockdown medical record. And, yeah. and I find that on occasion, our 340B team members at a covered entity don't actually have access to those um, yeah. uh, psychiatry records for inpatient psych or even outpatient psych. And so that's another area if you don't have access, make sure you know that. And when you come across yeah. psych medications as in a psych area, you may have to have a, a psych staff member come over. Although typically when we're doing our audits or or hearse audit prep for clients, we just request that a 340B team member get access to that and understanding yep. that it's a little bit more sensitive because it's psychiatry. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I've gone through that recently where um, in the ED, you know, in the ED where you have uh, like detox and, and um, ED holding for, for inpatient psych admits, um, needing to say, hey, samples three, nine, and, and 11 were um, given in patients that were in um, protected or locked files. So we're going to have to sequester those samples and we'll have somebody come down from the pharmacy and help us access those medical records um, at the same time. And again, HRSA has been very flexible, kind of bouncing around from the different samples. If you have different individuals that, uh, that, that have the access needed to review the medical records. So that's a great point. Any other, so again, talked about pulling reverse transactions out. I don't want to say manipulation because that makes it sound like we're fixing the data, but are, are there other um, tweaks to the data or things that we would suggest covered entities 
address before they upload the data file to HRSA? Yeah, you know, I mean, in theory, you shouldn't have non-covered outpatient drugs in your in your mixed use data. Uh, retail is a little different, right? Even NCOD, if it's NCOD in a mixed use side, retail side, you might be billing for it, so it's considered a covered outpatient drug. But for your mixed use area, sometimes you just have NCODs, non-covered outpatient drugs, flowing into your data just because you know someone charted on it goes in there, but by your process is you never buy those on 340B. Um, you know, they're excluded from GPO prohibition because they're they're on your NCOD list. Um, and I, th I think we talked about that a little bit when we were doing the policy procedure section that you should have an NCOD list, especially if you're a, a covered entity or hospital that has GPO prohibition um, as part of your requirements. And so sometimes we say, gosh, if you have NCODs and you're not, right, you shouldn't be, double check you're not purchasing them, right? That's that's something you need to fix. But um, if you're not purchasing, sometimes we have those removed because they're not going to be audited anyway, like vaccines, right? There's no point in having yep. vaccines and a vaccine gets selected by the HRSA auditor because it's not even a covered outpatient drug. It's it's not, There's no 340B price on it. And so we recommend definitely pulling those out. It's We get yep. it. Sometimes you just, there's NDCs changing all the time and, and getting them excluded. But if you identify them, um, First, make sure they're being excluded. Always maybe just drop either not being accumulated at all or going to your GPO accumulation because you're going to buy all GPO for those drugs anyway. Um, so that's one thing that I think we've done. Just, to, again, keep it clean because it, getting pulled for a sample likely means you're going to pull a spare anyway once they identify that it's an NCOD. Uh, so yeah. just preventing that is helpful. What about orphans, or orphan drugs for uh, drugs or covered entities subject to orphan drug exclusion? Yeah, same thing. I think if they're orphans that you're not buying on, you know, there are some orphans that I think manufacturers do allow 340 pricing, but to be honest, that's yeah. far and few in between anymore. There's hardly any left. So yeah. I'd say in general, yeah, excluding orphans makes sense because the vast majority of them, you're not going to even buy on 340. You don't have 340B pricing. And so like the NCODs, it's almost pointless to have them in there because because they're not 340B at that point. In fact, HRSA actually says NCODs, or NCODs, orphan drugs for an orphan, for a covered entity or a hospital subject to the orphan drug exclusion are non-covered non outpatient yeah. drugs. They're not 340B. So um, I, I think removing them is okay. Yeah, I agree. I, I've had scenarios where orphans were included in the data that was uploaded and then selected by HRSA for audit. And then we discovered or re recognized when we received the samples. Oh, that's, that's actually a drug where we're, we're, you know, we don't have 340B pricing on that because of the orphan drug exclusion sample gets thrown out and they select a spare. So again, trying to minimize that scenario from or reducing the scenario that the likelihood of that scenario from happening um, seems reasonable to exclude the, the orphan drugs. Yeah. I, I, one other area that you can't exclude, you, I mean, you shouldn't exclude, but uh, it can be problematic and you have to make sure you explain it well, would be anything you have on consignment, um, right? So a lot of, um, that's factor products. You're going to have outpatient, inpatient, and sometimes the yeah. accumulation on those are a little, uh, my technical term is wonky, um, because you're talking about variable sized vials and units coming in here, but you're decorating based on some multiplier here and it's it's a little messy which is actually why consignment works really nice as long as your consignment process is a good consignment process where you're really identifying hey, which patient received that, was their patient status inpatient or outpatient at the time, and then you're going to buy that drug on 340B or GPO based on that. Um, but do realize that your data itself, sometimes those consignment drugs may not look accurate because of the way um, those variable uh, vial sizes accumulate and get, get decremented, which is technically okay because you have a different process if you're using consignment to purchase them. Now, if you're actually using the accumulator, one thing, I mean, way ahead of an audit, make sure that's something you're specifically targeting yeah. in your monthly self-auditing to make sure that's yeah, being definitely. done correctly, because that can get um, a little out of uh, whack. Not to use, the, that's W-H-A-C-K, yeah. <laughs> not W-A-C whack, um, yeah. pretty quickly. Yeah, that's a great tip. Another question for you in terms of, I guess, um, 
strategy around organizing your data. So my, my first Hearst audit was, I think, back in 2014. Can't believe it. it's like going to be 10 years ago now. It was so 10 years for, ago. A long, long time ago. But the the myth at that time, and, and I was involved in that that Hearst audit, I had no 340B experience. I just knew the medical records, so I was the one that was pulling the samples. But prepping for that audit, the myth was you wanted to minimize the number of data files that you uploaded to HRSA because HRSA pulls 30 samples from each universe. So if you upload 10 different universe files into the portal, that's potentially 300 samples that you're going to have to work through for a HRSA audit. I never saw that happen, but what are your thoughts around aggregating utilization files um, or keeping them separate? Yeah, it's, I had the same myth, and and but the reality was, I early on in those years, I would see a hundred samples pulled from yeah. a contract pharmacy because they wanted to pull thirty from this one, twenty from this one, twenty from this, and from each process, I should say, not each contract pharmacy. You yeah. know, so so if you had one TPA or you had three TPAs for your contract pharmacy and in-house retail, they would want to pull a, a data set from each one, not necessarily thirty from each one, but that number did increase. So we did see some of that. We also saw for mixed use, and then. Clean sites, they'd pull separate samples. So there was some truth to that at some point in time. Now, I don't know when it officially switched, but but you're right. Even we did for many, many years said, we're going to combine all your mixed use clean sites. If you have multiple hospitals, we're going to put them in one big file. We're going to send it. So it's one universe. They'll only pull their 30 random samples and five high cost drugs. We're going to take all your retail and contract pharmacy and stick them in one big file. And so I, I've been on a, quite a few audits recently. And even when we sent, sent separate universes, it was still 65 samples. So yeah. that's the most I've ever seen recently is 65 samples. And what's interesting yep. is um, it's almost always 30 administer drug random samples, 30 contract pharmacy and retail random samples, and then five high cost drugs from your administer drug side. Typically, you're, you're mixed use where you're, you're accumulating and purchasing against those accumulations. And it's 65. But I did have one audit recently, which scared us because we sent the clean site separate from the mixed use. And they had pulled 30 mixed use and then an additional, I can't remember the exact number, but it was some like another 15 or so from the clean site and then the five yeah. high cost drugs. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's 50. Yeah. And, and then we looked at the contract pharmacy in-house retail and they pulled 15. Yeah. So they still only hit 65, but they did pull yeah. more on that side. And I was like, I have never seen that before. I've still, still only seen it once, but it did happen. Uh, yeah, I've, I've seen that as well, where and it looks like it's based on the proportion of size. So if uh, you've got 90 yeah. percent of your utilization is in your mixed use file and 10 percent of your total utilization is in your retail file, you, you're, they're going to pull uh, 54, 55 mixed use samples and only, you know, five or so um, retail samples. So I'm, I've, I've seen that a few times now. So I'm presuming there is some methodology where they look at the total number of lines in the data sets and then identify the samples they want to pull from each file based on that proportion. But um, I haven't seen anybody have more than 65 or so samples pulled for, for a given audit. So even if you're breaking out all of your utilization data and you're uploading, you've got maybe five or six retail pharmacy TPAs and you've got uh, mixed use and clean site, maybe you have multiple clean sites, uploading a number of different files isn't going to expand the number of samples that are pulled beyond, you know, 60 or so. Or at least we should say we haven't seen it expand yeah, past 65 right. in, in, in years. Yes. <laughs> I don't want to say that because also the next audit we go on, there's more like 80 samples. You're like, uh, yeah. never mind. We'll tell you what, if we ever see it, we'll report back. All right. I'm going through the list here. So there's a paragraph at the bottom of section three. It says sample administrations dispensations will be selected for testing. 
for the selected items, individual records need to be available, either in electronic or paper format. EHRs, if they're utilized, provide somebody that has knowledge of the system to navigate the EHR, including billing information, as well as split billing software. We'll talk about that in a second here. CE may be requested to upload selected documents to the NIH um, secure workspace. So um, uh, split billing data. We're not providing any accumulation data here. Rob, but explain what happens and how HRSA tests the accumulation process if you're working off of a virtual inventory through a TPA. Yeah, that's a good point, right? And and any of our clients who have gone through our our annual independent audits, it's something we do ask for, but it, it helps us understand kind of where you're at and and, and how your you know accumulation is looking. But your HRSA doesn't ask for those accumulation files. So what they do is, and this has been pretty consistent over the last couple of years. Um, well, I should say years ago, they only did tracers on the mixed use side. They didn't do yep. tracers on the retail and contract pharmacy, but pretty consistently they pull five tracers on your um, on your administered drug side and five tracers on your retail and contract pharmacy side. And starting with the, the administered drug side, they really are wanting to see in your TPA um, how, that drug specific accumulation. And they want to see the because now they know the, what the dose was and the quantity, and they're looking to see that it accumulated accurately. And then they're also looking at purchasing, which I find interesting. They're looking to see that mm -hmm. you did have a purchase prior. Um, to yep. that accumulation so that it, you know, in a recent time frame, so it shows that you accumulated an actual NDC you probably would have had on the shelf. And they also want to see that you bought the drug after. Um, now, we've had situations where they didn't buy the drug after, but, you know, it could have been a drug shortage or you could have simply switched NDCs after that. So that's not as yep. big a deal. But having had bought the drug at some point in time, at least in the recent history, actually is pretty yep. important. Otherwise, they're going to argue that you accumulated the wrong NDC. Um, and which could lead to diversion. So that's pretty important that you have that accurate. And, and they're looking at everything while you're in there. It's a little scary, right? Sometimes in doing that and looking at it, you can see your total accumulation. And sometimes it could be a negative sure. number, a positive number. And and so again, make sure that as part of your own process, that you're cleaning that up. You're identifying, why do I have large numbers? Why do I have negative numbers? It could have been an inaccurate multiplier. Get those corrected because yep. it is a, it is it's a bit concerning when there's an odd number and you're going through the Hearst audit. And yep. so, Something we work on regularly with our clients is to try and make sure we're understanding why those numbers are there and, you know, and, and fix them if possible. Yeah. They're, again, they're only pulling five from retail, and five from mixed use to trace. But when you get those samples a couple of days before the audit, you want to make sure you go through and look at each of those samples and look at the accumulations because you don't know they're not going to identify that until the day of the audit. So you'll complete all of your medical record review and then the Bizell auditor will typically say, we're going to look at samples 9, 12, 15, 22, and 29 in the TPA after a break. So you don't know that until the day of the audit. So you want to stage your kind of explanation of the accumulations ahead of time. And you're right, Rob, there's going to be, you know, likely some NDCs where you have a really high positive 340B accumulation, but you look, there's a large negative WAC accumulation because the WAC price is better than the 340B price. And that's okay. If you're buying it at WAC, no, no big deal, but you, you'll need to be prepared to explain that when you um, show that sample, if it gets selected for a for a purchasing tracer. Well, and I, I like to remind people there's, even though the prices, the 340B price could be better today, there could have been a period in time historically where WAC was better. And there's also, you know, if you're a relatively new covered entity, there's probably a period of time at the beginning, if you haven't switched TPAs, right, that that you, if, if some TPAs take months to get going, so you're months in, so you're buying on whack for two or three yep. months because you don't know the accumulation. Well, then when it finally catches up, you're sitting on this positive accumulation. But the reality is you're still accumulating, especially if it's a drug primarily used an outpatient. You may never really dwindle that 340B inventory down. It might take a long time anyway. 
if you've had months of uh, accumulation and just buying on WAC. So when you see a big WAC number, there probably is reasons, and that's a good time just to look at, well, when did those WAC purchases occur? Is it ongoing? Was it the beginning? But that might explain why you have a big number. And 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 her, the Hearst Autos are pretty good at seeing that as well. Yeah. How about the testing of accumulations on the retail side? Have you ever encountered any uh, pitfalls on the retail or the contract pharmacy side? You know, I, less because I think it's definitely a lot more accurate on the retail side, especially yeah. with, I mean, you're primarily orals, right? Rarely do we see issues with multipliers and pack size issues with, with orals. The injectables seem to be where the problems at, especially compounded yeah. drugs. So we don't see it as much except on compounds. Um, yeah. if, you get, if you get a sample compound, definitely take a look. Did you accumulate that correctly? Did you, yeah. are the NECs in there accurate? Are you, you know, is that all correct? Um, so I think that's an yeah. area you definitely want to focus on is, is compounded drugs. And, and once in a while we see one come across and everyone goes, oh crap, did we get, did we get that compound right? Um, Cause those are true yeah. for sure. Yeah. Bulk products too. I've seen, seen that where the dispensing pharmacy maybe is using the wrong quantity. So like an eight gram uh, inhaler is uh, charged as like an eight each or, a, uh, you know, they get, they get the billing units um, mixed up and that can result in an over accumulation. So yeah, grams versus you know, each yeah. yeah. Grams versus each is. So uh, that, I think that's just a great example of why you need to look at your total positive and negative accumulations in your in your retail environment as well as in your yeah. mixed-use environment. Enoxaparin is always the funny one to me because it's always based on uh, volume, right? Not, not yeah. milligrams or each is. It's like a, a 30 milligram pack. I forgot what it is, a 0.3 mils or something like that. So it's like three mils is a 10 pack. You're like, what? Or the quantity is three. It doesn't actually tell you the unit in most cases. So you just have to discern that yourself. But sometimes we Dude, see that, that error. I learned, uh, I learned enoxaparin the hard way when I was an intern. I worked at a retail pharmacy and we got enoxaparin from the uh, wholesalers, like a secondary wholesaler item. So you had to key in the order. And I, it was the first time I ever placed the order for Lovenox. I think I, I didn't really understand what quantity I was ordering. And we ended up getting nine totes of enoxaparin, 30 milligram syringes. It was non-returnable. It was like a $40,000 order. I was terrified that I was going to be let go. Um, and, you know, my preceptor was really understanding, you know, kind of, you know, good teaching point from able to redistribute the inventory. But I am, I, I will typically look at Lovenox now You're when right. I do my audits because I had a painful experience, you know, many years ago as an intern. So, yeah, no, a is another good one though, because right, you got six and a half gram and eight gram. You've got these weird gram sizes with the, um, the yeah, inhalers and, and sometimes people don't get those right. So, another yeah. good one to look at to make sure they're accumulating correctly. Because again, most of the orals are going to be fine. It is the injectables and other products that, that are problematic. Yeah. Any tips on so one one thing that we didn't talk about? Well, we mentioned it a little bit, but it, the, the it's prefaced at the beginning of the section three is you need to um, remove identifiable information or PHI from the the data set. What's I guess practically what is that? Is that just striking out um, names and date of births in in Adobe or printing stuff out on paper and using a, a sharpie? What, what any thoughts, Rob, around that? Yeah, the Sharpie seems to still come through sometimes. And so what yeah. I do is a little different. What I like to do is it depends if you have it. But if you have one of the Adobe um, programs or Foxit or something that has the ability to um, redact, um, I like to use it. But that redacting tool, if someone also has that same tool, they can take away your redaction, right? So They can unredact it, yeah. So what I like to do is use that tool to redact it, and then I print to PDF. When you print to PDF, it actually takes a static copy of it that no longer can be removed. So that's my trick on how I do it. And, and I guess that's true for any document yeah. you need to redact something. And you're worried that the person receiving it could unredact it. Um, print the PDF um, after you redact it, locks it in, at least from my experience. Yeah. Yourself. yeah. 
No, no, same same thing. So usually, typically using Adobe and clients that we're working with, we'll we'll, we'll support them through that. If, so if you if you're not working with us and and you don't have access to Adobe, I know sometimes those um, software systems are, are hard to come by on the provider side. You know, make sure you let your IT department know when you get a HRSA audit notice. Hey, we may need a software solution here to redact some of the the electronic data that we need to upload. So save you the the hassle of printing out. UBO4 claims and then blacking them out with a with a sharpie or uh, whiteout or something like that. So, yeah, I've I've, uh, I've de- we've definitely done that before. It kind of we call them uh, uh, redacting parties. We're yeah. just redacting all the documents. So those UBO4s, by the way, I think we I I, I don't want to jump again. I know we have that later on, um, so we won't talk yeah. about UBO4s yet. But that's going to be a fun one. That's the last one. That's the the coup de gras is the the Medicaid billing information. So. You've got a lot of uh, out of state Medicaid and a lot of child sites. Just get gear oh. up for that one. <laughs> All right. Any other pearls of wisdom from the field, Rob, on Section Three, getting all your universe data put together? Um, I would say definitely pull that data as soon as possible. Make sure you're going through it, making sure it makes sense. That right. So the things we talked about, the NCODs, the um, the, if you're orphans or um, things like that, that you can remove uh, vaccines, those types of things, make it your data is pretty clean um, as you're going through that and um, and do it early because it sometimes takes time to get those the right reports and get it formatted, um, give people a chance to kind of review it to make sure that's correct. Um, yep. And uh, just just make sure you're getting on this one early. Don't wait to the last minute because um, sometimes you won't yep. have the time to to really make sure it's it's where it needs to be. Yeah, I agree. Pull, you got to start working on that as soon as you get the date, the audit notice from HRSA. Like, you know, I remember back at the health system that I worked at, somebody immediately was <laughs> running extraction reports out of the TPA because you want to cross-reference your utilization, whatever is coming out of the TPA. You want to cross-reference that against, um, you know, your your internal audit data. So there may be samples that you've reversed or samples that you've already corrected. You want to make sure those aren't reflected in the data. So whether it's, you know, a- accumulation issues that you've already corrected and, and are still sitting in there, you want to make sure that those are reconciled. If you've already reversed maybe some inadvertent out-of-state Medicaid claims that carved in, uh, you want to make sure that you're, you're accu- accurately reflecting that, you know, carve-out process in, in the data that you're providing to HRSA. So there, you may need to take a couple of swings at the the data files that are going to be uploaded eventually into the NIH portal to make sure that they're accurately reflecting what your true 340B utilization is. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap for HRSA DRL item number three. Good thoughts, Rob. Appreciate it. Yeah, that was good. All right. Next time we talk, it's going to be DRL item number four. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you next time. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.